Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be covering crush disasters. Mainly Hillsborough, where in 1989, 97 people were killed at a football game in Sheffield. We will then summarise some other crushes, uh, such as Astro World, where in 2021, 10 people were killed at a concert in Houston, Texas, and the Love Parade Festival crush in Germany. And this is going to be a two-part series, uh, and this is episode one. Hello, uh, this is Jasmine from the future, popping in uh, for the first time on, on an episode. Uh, when I came to edit this episode, I noticed that the, the sound is a bit rubbish. Uh, it's a tiny bit fuzzy for, for about the first half of this episode. I've tried my best to clean it up as much as I can, but yeah, I apologize. I promise it does get better uh, as you keep listening, and it is much better in the second part of this episode as well. So yes, apologies if this is the first episode of mine that you're listening to. Uh, I promise that the audio is usually much better. Anyway, enjoy the episode. Yeah, crushes. Hard. I've actually... Hillsborough's been on my list forever to cover, uh, but I find them, I find crushes really horrible. I mean, I find everything, obviously everything we talk about is horrible, but I find crushes very hard. And especially because in all of the crush disasters we're going to talk about today, they were like done in a world where like they were fully filmed. And I think that's very hard because you then basically have all this like really horrific footage of how what actually happened and what it looked like and you just see these like you know like video images of these crowds and people in them and you're just like oh and I think all of us have been like in a crowd where you just haven't felt comfortable like where you've been like oh you know what like this is like just far too close for comfort and people you know you could you can I think everyone can then imagine how where it can go and how these things can happen so therefore they they're kind of yeah ones that are a bit kind of closer to closer to people's realities I think when we talk about like caves and stuff like if you just don't go in a cave you'll be fine but in these it's like you would it's just a standard you know standard events and these crushes happen but anyway I was kind of wary of it but uh, I am glad to be covering it because I think they're all really important Anyway, before I get into that, I've just got on to on a bit of a on a bit of a tangent. But uh, before that, uh, please do follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod over there. Love to chat to you. Please send me a message. Uh, always willing to have a chat. Uh, and then, other than that, if you could please rate uh, the podcast, hopefully five stars on whatever you are listening to, uh, that would be fabulous. Thank you. I'm going to talk before I, so on this episode, I'm going to cover Hillsborough, just Hillsborough up to, up to kind of after the incident. Then in part two, I'm going to cover Hillsborough aftermath, and then I'm going to high level cover World and Love Parade. My initial plan when I was planning these episodes was I was going to do a three part series and I was going to go into them in, in a lot more detail. But actually when I started looking into World and Love Parade, there's so much content out there for them. So I was like, you know what? I'll cut this back down to two episodes. I'll high level cover both of them. Uh, but then that leaves it open for uh, a much more detailed episode on on one or both of them in the future. So if you listen to this and then you are interested in it and you do want a more detailed episode, do let me know uh, and I'll make sure I cover it. So before I get into Hillsborough, I just want to talk a little bit about crowds and crushes and like how they happen. So yeah, so let's talk about crowds and what can make them so dangerous. So I think the first thing to note about crowds is that it's not about the crowd size. So you can have a really big crowd and it can be very, very safe. Uh, It very much comes down to the crowd density. So how many people you have in a specific area. And usually when we talk about like kind of crowd science, which is very much a thing, they measure it in terms of the number of people per square meter. Uh, So if you exceed four people per square meter, then that's kind of pushing into the the area where the crowd will become dangerous. That is, um, excuse Juniper, meowing in the background. And so, and I have to say, like, I've definitely, if I think about the uh, 
uh, some joyful commuting I've done in London. I think I've very much got into the place where it's been more than four people per square meter. And I have to say, it's been very not enjoyable. So yes, you can really see how it can become dangerous. And the kind of the thing about this is that in order to kind of increase that density, it then comes down to two factors, the number of people that are allowed into a specific space and then the size of the specific space. And so that is then what leads to things like safe crowd limits in different scenarios. So you can look at how big it is and then go, okay, this is the amount of people we can have in uh, in order to make sure that it's a it's a safe space. Uh, and the key thing here then is that once you get to kind of unsafe crowd densities, the crowd itself basically becomes kind of one like combined mass of people and the crowd can then act like fluid. So you see this when you, um, if you watch videos of crowds, there's when certain movements happen within the crowd, you know, the whole crowd is impacted. So, you know, you can have one push or one movement on one side of the crowd and that will then lead and impact the crowd as a whole or it'll start on one side and make it all the way to the other. And this can then lead to to catastrophe, to bad bad things happening. So then uh, in the crowd, you can have things like people can then fall. And if you fall when you're in the crowd, uh, then it's very likely that you might be trampled and not, uh, you know, not, not necessarily on purpose, right? Just because literally people can't avoid you. And therefore, that is what, what happens. Uh, sometimes if people do fall, it can lead to crowd collapse. And that's because when someone falls, if you're in an area of really high pressure, if someone falls, it kind of creates a void and then you fall uh, and then it causes other people to fall into that void that's been created, uh, which just means that, yeah, it it can kind of escalate very quickly with more and more people falling and then people fall on top of each other. And then you kind of get these like piles of people uh, and then that can can lead to the people that fell first, uh, you know, being compressed and, and dying. And usually in crowds and especially of the ones that we're going to talk about today, uh, most people then die of either the injuries they get uh, from the crush themselves or uh, from what's called crush asphyxia, which is basically where you are in such a tight uh, environment that you cannot physically breathe, like you can't physically expand your ribcage because there's just not enough space around you. Uh, And that uh, often happens to people that are are stuck in a crowd, but then like stuck on the edges. Uh, So if people are yeah, between another person and a fixed area. So if you're, uh, you know, against a wall or a barrier, uh, then that can be very dangerous. Uh, but it can it can happen in the middle of a crowd when you're when you're against other people. So yeah, I thought that that was just a bit of context. Uh, so now, yeah, let's talk about Hillsborough. Like I said, it is such a tragic story, which is why it has been putting. Put, put me off a bit to, to cover it but I really think it is important to cover these types of, of, of things and I think that it has taught a lot uh, and led to a lot of lessons for us to take forward both in crowds but also in in the handling of disasters as we will see. So in order to kind of cover Hillsborough in a in a in a fair way that covers all the different aspects of it, uh, I want to give a bit of context as to kind of what was happening at the time in terms of like football and culture, um, and then also what was happening in the in the days up until Hillsborough happened. Uh, for context, so uh, Hillsborough was a crowd crush, as I mentioned. Uh, if you're not in the UK, you might not be familiar with it I definitely don't remember it much growing up in New Zealand but uh, I think if you're in the UK it's definitely something that you will heard about and know about Uh, but basically it happened uh, the crowd crush happened at a football game Uh, it was the FA Cup semi-final um, which I mean this is going to be bad because I'm not not a big football (laughs) I'm not great at football um yeah so it's it's the semi-final of of a very important football match tournament and it was yeah the final between uh semi-final between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest uh, and it was at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield uh so that kind of just gives a little bit of context because I think the the fact that it happened the fact that it was in a football stadium uh, football stadium and the culture of football at the time I think really influenced what had happened 
if we rewind to uh, football at the time. So football was played in stadiums, as you would expect. Uh, but back in those days, actually, the majority of stadiums that we had across the UK were mostly standing, which I never really like I never really grasped I guess uh, as much as I should have until I uh, was researching this but yeah back in the day very much you know we're talking probably most stadiums being two-thirds standing with one-third seated and that was how people like to watch football you know people were excited they're on their feet they were you know uh, it was it was really part of the culture to be in these kind of standing big areas with with your football friends this meant that people were kind of aware of the of what could happen in standing areas because it had been you know we've been standing at football for a long time but it also meant that there had been different types of crushes like this previously uh, and opportunities for people to learn from previous crushes which clearly didn't happen uh, so usually in the stadiums, they usually had kind of what what they call terraces or cops, uh, K-O-P, um, where you would where you were able to stand, and these were usually kind of big big areas, big stands in the stadium, terraces, and then the terraces were stepped so that then you could obviously see uh, as you as you went back up. So they were um, they were slanted down, steps in between them, uh, and eventually they started having what they were called crush barriers within them as well. So you know every few steps there would be a barrier uh, in an attempt to to kind of make sure that if you say you were at the back and you pushed forward. Uh, then eventually, you know, you would have a, there would be a a stop break in the middle. It wouldn't go all the way to the front. Uh, And yeah, there was quite a a history of crushes, Um, not just at Hillsborough, but at Hillsborough alone uh, in 1981, they had a crush by the turnstiles and the outer concourse. Um, And we'll talk about those uh, areas as well today because they're really important. Uh, And that crush in 1981 was only relieved by opening additional exit gates in order to let people out. Uh, And it led to a lot of injuries, but no one died. And so it wasn't really kind of considered as, uh, you know, hugely seriously by some of the authorities. Uh, But they did, as a result of this, make some changes to Hillsborough Stadium. And when they made those changes in the design, they basically invalidated the the safety certificates of the stadium itself. Um, But at the time, as we will learn, uh, that, that wasn't really kind of considered an issue. Then again in Hillsborough in 1987 and 1988, the year before the the disaster we're going to talk about, there had also been crushing and crowding incidents in the same area. uh, And it was noted that they weren't kind of adequately managed by police or stewards. And complaints uh, were lodged by the fans who had been involved in these crushes against, uh, uh, you know, against the police and against the stadium following these events. But nothing was changed and nothing was kind of taken seriously. So I think that that, clearly shows that you know we're, we're talking here about a, a stadium which has previously has had incidents and potentially we could have we could have seen this coming um if, if someone had done something about it so then another kind of consideration of the time uh, was was the culture so especially in the 70s and 80s uh, football definitely had a bit of a reputation for what what we call hooliganism which you know very much was around you know football matches being associated with things like a lot of heavy you know heavy drinking violence um that kind of gang culture around each of the teams that type of thing uh, and i mean it, and it you know it makes sense right like especially i've had a lot of conversations about football because i've been doing this episode uh, but you know a lot of people really take their football team in the UK like as their identity you know it, it it's it's more than just a team you support especially in, in this time period that we're talking about you know this was like part of you and part of your culture and so therefore uh, you you kind of you got really happy when your team did well you got really sad when your team didn't do well you know you you really you fought your side and that can therefore when you combine it with lots of lots of drinking and the and the kind of um yeah areas that we're talking about it can lead to to hooliganism and 
and issues. So it can lead to lots of violence, racism, abuse. Uh, there were quite a lot of things around riots. There was also quite a lot at um, at previous football games uh, where there would be things like pitch invasions, where there would be fights in the different stands, all this kind of thing. And so, you know, that led to some changes like, you know, obviously the the different teams having different ends and not mixing not mixing supporters that type of thing uh, but I thought that in you know really to to kind of highlight this culture at the time so in 1985 four years previously uh, in Brussels Heysel Stadium I want to say uh, Juventus played Liverpool um, and a group of Liverpool fans went to that match in Brussels. Uh, the fans had been drinking through the day uh, and they basically ended up having this like giant, like riot, violent fight uh, between the different fans. Uh, and this led to uh, a wall collapsing on other fans uh, and 39 people died, uh, most of them Italian uh, Juventus fans. Uh, and I didn't, I mean, I hadn't heard of this because like I say, not my area of expertise, but this then led to a five-year ban of all England teams going to any uh, European matches. So any UEFA, U, UEFA, how you say it? UEFA uh, matches uh, and the Champions League. So like fully, the culture was kind of rampant enough that 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 happened as a result of that. Also at the time, you know, we're talking like quite an, a period of upheaval. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister at the time. Uh, she apparently wanted to stop hooliganism. Uh, and as we, as we know, she was a very polarizing figure. Uh, and yeah, I have to say, obviously, hooliganism has, has changed, I think, and decreased a lot in, in the years in the years since what we're talking about. But I think that it's important to highlight this before I go into the kind of timeline of, of Hillsborough, uh, because it it it's an excuse that has been given and I think it puts it into a bit more context. So let's go, let's zoom back in then into, into Hillsborough and what happened. Uh, before I go into the timeline, I'm just going to talk a little bit about before the event. So first of all, a key thing happened in the run-up to the event uh, in which the South Yorkshire police, so they were the uh, the police force that was in charge of uh, managing and, and policing the match. They had an, an incident, in uh, inverted commas, uh, which resulted in a change in their leadership. Uh, so the South Yorkshire Police previously had mainly been managed by a very experienced police officer called Brian Mole. And Brian had uh, managed lots of football matches previously. He had managed especially matches at Hillsborough, so knew the stadium, knew how it worked, knew, you know, the previous in, you know issues and incidents that had happened before. Uh, so therefore would hopefully have the knowledge to, to mean that they don't happen again. Uh, but in the months leading up to Hillsborough, uh, the South Yorkshire Police Division had a big scandal in the uh, the division that he was in, uh, where one of the one of the PCs was handcuffed, photographed, and stripped in a fake robbery as a hazing prank. This uh, went all over the papers, uh, and it was you know it was quite uh, a big deal. It led to a lot of people leaving or being disciplined. And maybe coincidentally, at that time, um, what then happened was that Mole was given a career development opportunity, again in inverted commas, um, and he was transferred to Barnsley, so away from uh, this area, which meant that therefore he couldn't uh, manage the, the football match. Uh, and so this meant that the change in kind of uh, official accountability moved to uh, another person, so Chief Superintendent David Duckinfield. And so Duckinfield was now the policeman that was in charge of the football game um, and noted that he had, you know, little experience in this and, and no experience at Hillsborough. now talk about Hillsborough Stadium and try and paint a picture for you but to be honest if you look at a map that will make this easier if you literally just google Hillsborough disaster map 
uh, you will see beautiful pictures that I will struggle but attempt to explain now uh, just so you can really understand how this the stadium was made up and therefore what happened. So first of all, Hillsborough, like a lot of the traditional stadiums in the UK, they were often built in the middle of suburban areas. So like, I know, I know, um, I was near Selhurst the other day in that stadium, like it's literally just a normal suburb and then right in the middle of it there'll be this ginormous stadium that that is the local football stadium uh, which is which is just a bit odd if you compare it to more modern purpose-built stadiums which are then built with the kind of infrastructure around them of being able to get to them and 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 be able to manage people around the the stadium themselves but in this case very much in the middle of a suburban area and they, you know, they were built back in the day with when they were expecting much smaller, you know, capacities to to turn up. The the numbers have definitely changed over the years in terms of how how people will travel and, and attend these games. And so this meant that basically there wasn't a huge, a great amount of access uh, from transport in the area in order to get into the stadium. And at first, I was a bit like, why? Like, if it was Chef, if it was Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, why? was it in Sheffield and Hillsborough? Uh, but basically because it was the FA Cup semi-final, they wanted to pick a neutral area uh, rather than going into either of the locations of the teams. Um, and that helped with the hooliganism, as we said. But what this did mean is that a lot of people may not have been as familiar with the stadium uh, and, and the kind of surrounding areas. So then the stadium itself was made up of four stands uh, and the stands themselves usually had seats at the top of the stand where people could go and sit, uh, but then standing terraces below them where lots of people would stand. And like I said, more people standing than sitting. And so for every game, each team was assigned a side to sit on. Like I said, uh, they weren't weren't mixed. Um, and there were two, two like main ends at at Hillsborough, one which was called the Spion Cop, like I said, another name for the terraces, um, and then the other other end, which was called the Leppings Lane End. And the Leppings Lane End is where this disaster happened, um, and these are the, the terraces which are beneath the West Stand. So what had happened as a result of the 1981 issues, which I talked about previously, is that Previously, they had one big open terrace. So they just had one really long open area where people could stand. But what had been previously suggested was that they should put in pens into the, into the terraces to cr- try and kind of separate out the crowd. So what this meant was that they put big fences up uh, kind of vertically across the horizontal terrace. So you've got a a long horizontal terrace. I'm doing hand gestures, which means no use to you at all. Uh, but literally, they were creating pens. So hopefully you can you can think of that. Uh, but yeah, there were horizontal and then kind of vertical lines between, which created a, a, a pen that people could stand in. And then that meant that the, they, when you were standing in the terrace, you basically had where you came in behind you, and then you were surrounded by fences on all three sides. Um, and this was because as a result of the pitch invasion stuff that I talked about before, uh, the pen was surrounded by then a pitch fence, so a fence at the front as well, to try and stop people running out onto them. Uh, and they were usually quite tall and, and very hard for people to climb up and over. So yeah, so like I said, that meant the pens were surrounded on all sides. There were seven pens in the Leppings Lane end, um, and two of them, the two that we were going to talk about today, pens three and four, were the pens that were directly behind the goal. Um, and these were obviously a place where people wanted to go. You wanted to be behind the goal, get the get the action. And to get to those pens, pens three and four, there was a tunnel that led to them. And so this meant that then pens three and four were very much boxed in. So there was just one quite small tunnel leading to these two pens. And then when you got into the pens themselves, you were fenced off uh, from all directions. If we zoom out then a little bit more in order to get into that area where those pens were, there was what was called the Leppings Lane entrance. Uh, And the Leppings Lane entrance had turnstiles in order to let people through. 
And obviously that means that people kind of uh, are filtered into the ground more slowly. It enables people to check tickets, etc. cetera. Uh, but on the day that we're talking about, they only had seven turnstiles which were in operation and they were really slow. Uh, and outside of kind of where the turnstiles were, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a really organized area. It was small outside as well. Uh, and that was, like I said, surrounded then by suburban housing. We've got, we've got context. I've been talking for 20 minutes and I've only just done the context. So that's not, I apologize that these are going to be long. So like I said, this was a match for the semi-final of the FA Cup between Nottingham Forest and Liverpool. And actually Liverpool had the larger crowd that was going to the match just because uh, Liverpool was a, was a bigger club at the time. Uh, and, but in order to kind of avoid uh, like the, the routes of the different people crossing over to the estate, to the stadium, uh, they eventually assigned the, the Leppings Lane end to the Liverpool team. And this meant that they had uh, around, like I said, those seven turnstiles had to process almost 10,000 people's standing ticket holders in order to get there. Um, And that was obviously a challenge uh, compared to potentially less uh, tickets that would have been uh, less people that would have been coming to the the match if you had swapped the, the, the teams over. Um, at the time, on the day, so most of the fans arrived, they arrived on trains, coaches, uh, and then usually what would happen would be that uh, the, the teams would be assigned like a pub or a few pubs or an area uh, before the game and they'd be able to go off uh, and, and be able to head off, spend some time there before then walking to the stadium. Sorry if this sounds a bit funny there, hopefully sorted. And most of the fans weren't in a rush um, and most of them didn't get there particularly early. So it was a 3 p.m. kickoff. People would arrive, go to their areas, go to the pub, have a drink uh, and then head over there. So in preparation for the match, uh, the stadium was managed by a combination of stadium stewards and the police uh, in working together in order to manage the crowds and the areas. And there had been preparation meetings before the match. Uh, and in those meetings, the main topics that they talked about uh, were more things around like crowd control, how to manage violence, alcohol, uh, how to manage kind of tic- ticketless fans, outbursts that type of thing, rather than anything around crushes or capacity. And that, like I said, that's very much probably because of the of the culture at the time. The stadium was then managed by and policed by a commander, uh, and there was a control booth within the stadium itself, uh, and this was where the commander would sit. Uh, and then there was police uh, and stewards inside and outside the stadium, including a lot of police on horses. Uh, and then they, the kind of commanders were supported both by uh, CCTV, which allowed them to see different areas, uh, but they all generally had radio communications as well. Often on the the lead up to the Leppings Lane entrance, uh, where those turnstiles were, uh, there was often crowd control and queue management. Uh, but on this day, there wasn't any, uh, and that led to a big to a big issue. So this led to a load of people arriving at those turnstiles and then getting stuck in this in this big crowd outside of the stadium. And so people were were trying to get in. They were trying to get in and, and ready for the match, but they just weren't many places that they could go it wasn't orderly there wasn't a queue they just joined they just kind of had to go join the mass and try and push their way forward Uh, and what also happened is that then if people did get to the front of this crowd and then they had an issue so say they got to the front and then realized they were at the wrong turnstile the wrong entrance uh they had issues with their tickets anything like that they then kind of got stuck there and then were like in the way uh there wasn't an easy way for them to get back out which then made the kind of management and and structure of the crowd harder to manage and so as the kickoff time uh, for the football match got uh, closer and closer, the kind of push and the urgency in that crowd in order to try and get through the turnstiles uh, got heavier and, and, and harder and, and people were really pushing their way to the front. And then once you entered the turnstiles, 
when you um when you managed to get through as soon as you got through and walked in there basically was a big sign towards the pens and there was a sign which went straight towards uh to pens three and four so literally as soon as you walked through the first thing you saw were the signs to pens three and four and and the kind of sign to the tunnel which was straight straight in front of you uh, and this meant that then the signs to the other five pens were were pretty minimal and quite hard to find and so if you were you know you weren't familiar with the stadium uh, you were there with your tickets you just wanted to see the match what would naturally happen is that once you managed to get your way through the turnstiles as soon as you went through you saw a sign that said pens you went great you walked <laughs> you, you know you, you followed the the path of least resistance and you walked down the tunnel uh, to to where the pens were and so this really meant that, yeah, as people kind of kept coming through, uh, people were walking more and more to pens three and four rather than going anywhere else. And previously, uh, in, in other matches, there had been crowd management strategies because of this. So previously, what they had done is that they had uh, mounted policemen who at a set point would kind of stand in front of that tunnel and start to try and direct fans into some of the other pens uh, in order to, to then even out where they were sitting. And uh, there's a lot of footage of Hillsborough, which I'll talk about when I talk about references, but uh, there is footage where they were kind of practicing before the game and the commentator says like, oh, it's really weird that, you know, those those two pens seem very full and these these other ones all seem seem pretty empty, which which is a bit odd. And this has led to a big debate as to who controls the amount of people that went into the pens and how how that would work. And I mean, these days, it would always be the responsibility of, of the stadium or, or the police. But at that time, uh, the police had the theory that the crowd would kind of sort itself out and they would, would naturally have management of where they needed to go and, and what they should do uh, and therefore not overload any specific area themselves. You know, they thought, well, the pen would get too full, people would go, cool and then they would head off and, and go somewhere else instead of just pushing through but the, the thing is is that that's all well and good if you're in a big wide open space and people can actually get to where they want to go uh, when you're talking about this like I said a very constrained area that wasn't really possible I've got a few quotes through this uh, I'll talk about the book at the end but they're all from the book uh, called Hillsborough Voices and yeah all, all very very good uh, so uh, I have a quote here which says, Presa asked Murray whether the Leppings Lane pens should be opened and filled one at a time. Murray's reply illustrates a similar blind faith in what was effectively a self of a type of self-policing amongst football crowds. He said that all pens should be open simultaneously as fans would find their own level. What he meant was that if it was too crowded in one pen, we'd move to another until we found a satisfactory vantage point. That kind of thinking might have had some plausibility in a huge unsegregated end like the cop, but with Leppings Lane sectioned off into pens, it was a huge risk. And so this was, you know, a real a real issue uh, that that was that very much contributed to what happened. Uh, and so at this point, there was a request that the starting time of the game game actually be delayed um, in order to let people safely through. So at this point, we're getting towards three o'clock. There's actually, uh, you know, more than 5,000 fans who haven't made their way into the stadium yet, who are very keen and really trying to push their way in through Leppings Lane. And so the policemen who were outside the Leppings Lane area were trying very hard to, uh, yeah, see if they could get the, the start delayed, which had happened previously uh, in order to get people in. Uh, but generally, uh, they tried not to do that and they would only do it if uh, there was like a big delay elsewhere. So like if there had been a big crash on the motorway, which had meant a load of coaches of people wasn't wasn't on time, that type of thing, then they would consider delaying it. But in this case, uh, the request to delay the game was not approved. So this meant that as it got closer and closer to 3 p.m., there was still an estimated 5,000 fans trying to get in. And my next quote, between 2.40 and 2.45 p.m., the crowd inside and outside the turnstile approach had swelled to over 5,000. At the head of the phalanx, conditions had become intolerable. Those who got through were short of breath and sweating profusely. Many complained to police officers on the concourse inside the turnstiles and asked them in forceful terms to do something. So this is where the issue is at the moment. Uh, the issue was very much outside the stadium trying to get in. 
So at this point, uh, one of the constables who was at that gate and at the turnstiles radioed in to get permission to ask if they could open a large gate, uh, what is known as gate C, uh, could be opened. And this is basically a large exit gate that's next to the turnstiles. Could they open that up in order to kind of allow the flow of people through uh, rather than waiting for them to get through the turnstiles? And this was requested three times to um, to David Duckenfield in order to uh, ask if it was allowed to be opened. Uh, and eventually uh, he did agree. And what this led to is it meant approximately 2,000 people entered the stadium really quickly. And you can see this on video. Like this is, you know, people aren't like running and crazy, but people are walking at a, at a fast pace uh, very much through through this, this gate and into, into the stadium. And like I said, these people were late. They wanted to get in. They wanted to see see the action as quickly as they as they could. So as soon as they went in, they went to the first place that they could see where they could see the green pitch, which meant namely that they were going down to the pens three and four. But also at this time, the crowd was almost, like I said, the crowd almost at some point starts to act with a mind of its own where you can't really go against the crowd. Uh, so really at this point, the crowd was getting so dense that you really didn't have the choice. You just kind of had to kind of be pulled along and follow through into, into the area. And so this eventually now led to the crush. So it really took a long time for people to understand that that, that was what was happening uh, because it obviously, I mean, I don't know why it took people a long time because if you look at the videos and stuff, it's very obvious what is going on. But basically those inside the inside the pen, and especially in pen three, you know, they were they were very much being crushed to death right in the middle of the stadium with with thousands of other people watching but it took them a long time to to understand that that was the case the people in the pen were generally ignored that what also happens when you are being crushed is that it's very then hard to to kind of yell and hard to be able to get help but people were then at this point panicking really you know it was now this this was getting dangerous people were going to get hurt which then leads to panic and then leads to to things that can can be even worse so at this point, people, especially at the front, were panicking. They were really trying hard to get out of the pen. Uh, so people started climbing fences. Uh, but often, you know, with a lot of people, they were just literally so pinned to each other or pinned to the wall that they were just unable to move. And so some, like I say, some climbed out. Some actually were like pulled, like the people in the stand above them pulled people up out of the out of the bit below if they were able to uh, and then they were able to be to kind of pull out eventually they did manage to open a, a small door um, at the end uh, which then allowed a few people to to leave but yeah they just like police and others just didn't really they just didn't realize what was happening for for quite a long time and the police you know originally thought that it was like a pitch invasion so they saw people climbing over the fence they thought an invasion was happening um and and they you know started like yelling at people for climbing over the fans the Nottingham Forest fans who didn't know what was happening like they were getting really mad because they were like what are those guys doing like why are you stopping this game like what what is happening you're causing a scene kind of thing they didn't realize that actually what they were what they were seeing was a total disaster um, and there was a goalie at the um, at the end by the pen, and the goalie reports, you know, hearing all these people uh, yelling to him, asking for help, uh, and this kind of all reached a, uh, the the worst point at around three o four, where um, there was an attempt at the at the Liverpool goal, which hit the bar, and then what this happened was that uh, it led to a push from the back of the crowd, and as this push went, like I say, acts like fluid. That one push from people at the back who might not be that crushed, you know, the people at the back might just be like, oh. This is fine um but but that that one movement then meant that all the people at the front were even more uh, constricted and yeah there's a there's a quote uh from the book which i'll read which was from a man called peter carney um who was actually in the crowd and he says i'm completely unable to move now my legs have gone numb and my arms are trapped down by my sides so I've tried to whip my arms free and I'm thinking, I'll just try to stay still and concentrate on my breathing. And now for the first time, you really are starting to think, you know, it crosses your mind that this is really, really serious. The fellow next to me, I couldn't move at all by, by now and he's right there turning blue. Still, the copper in front of us was taking no notice. We're shouting out to him, people are getting crushed in here, get us out. 
which I just think really, you know, shows what what is happening and what just a horrific like time and and place that this was. And I think if you watch, you can watch this footage of all of this, and you can see like I, it's just I, I honestly wouldn't recommend. I think it's a bit of, of morbid curiosity, right? That you would go out and be like, oh, I'll go and look at this. But I would really recommend not watching it because I still, like, even now, you just have this, like, these images ingrained in your head of people that were literally, like, so compressed against the fence at the front that literally, like, you could just see them being crushed to death. It was, it's awful. It was, uh, yeah. And how they didn't realize this at the time. Yeah, very awful. So yeah, very much at this point, uh, the commanders in the control box should have realized what was happening. Um, and at 3.05, uh, the policeman of the pitch did realize that something was going was happening, something was going wrong. Uh, and he uh, got the attention of the referee and stopped the, the game uh, which was happening in order to, to try and focus and, and, and sort out and help people. And so, like I said, at this point, uh, a small door was forced open and that did help uh, some people to, to escape. So at this point, uh, as we as we get into the disaster coming up until three, well, from three p.m. onwards, uh, we've got huge numbers of people that were were dead or seriously injured. You've got fans who are just kind of like spilling onto the pitch out of the pen, uh, and then you've got people trying to help and really try and and support others who are who are hurt and injured. And so, very much what happened is it was a really poor response at this point from the police, but also from the emergency services who were. I mean, we'll talk more about them later, but. M- a lot of them weren't even in the stadium. They're outside the stadium. They weren't coordinated in a way that makes sense for them to be able to come in and, and help people. So what this meant was that, in general, it was just fans trying to help other fans for the majority of, of what was going on. People were tearing off the like hoardings where the like ads were uh, to use them as makeshift stretchers. And what they would do is that they would get these stretchers, put put a person on them, and then try and run them down the other end of the pitch uh, in order for them to then get help, kind of away from away from the chaos. There were some like first aiders and doctors in the crowd who who rushed forward and gave help to those who needed it. Uh, and yeah, there was just a lot of confusion with, with the ambulances and what was going on. There was a lot of confusion as to whether people needed to be taken out to the ambulances or if the paramedics needed to go in and then get their people and then take them to the to the ambulance. It just really wasn't clear. It just was not uh, organized or, or kind of controlled in any way. And it just sounds horrendous, really, what happened in, you know, in this, at uh, this, at this point, people were, would, were dead as they were pulled out. Uh, what people would do is they'd pull uh, some clothing over their face to indicate that these, these people had died. Uh, and then eventually they were taking bodies over to, to a nearby gym uh, where they, where they could be held to eventually be identified. Those that did need help kind of tried to be grouped, but unfortunately, and as we will talk about quite a bit, a lot of people that could have survived, had they gotten help, just did not get help fast enough. Uh, And in one case, there was one of the victims, a 15-year-old boy called Kevin Williams, and he was taken over by fans uh, to get further help. And when they carried him over, you know, they they saw him. They were like, yep, yeah, he looks like he's alive. He looks like he just needs some help and, and he will be okay. Uh, and they, they put him back in back in an area and then ran back to, to help other people. And Kevin did unfortunately, unfortunately die of his injuries, but only because he didn't receive the right care. But that wasn't kind of known at the time. And that, yeah, kind of, is an important event that happened because it would then uh, lead, we'll reference it a lot in the aftermath, uh, especially around with his mum, a woman called Anne Williams. So yeah, the chaos just totally continued. Like I say, bodies were taken to the gym for identification uh, because 
of of the time in the 80s uh, you know the news very much spread out over the radio of all the deaths that had happened but most people had traveled to the stadium so families at home like didn't know what had happened so you just knew that your loved one had headed off to the match and then you knew that this horrible thing had happened but you didn't know if your if 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 your person was involved in it and nor was it easy for, for these people to get in contact and often you know, people had traveled from wherever they had traveled from in order to get there. So it wasn't like a quick, quick dip back. Uh, they were both at like an away stadium. So it was quite difficult. And so what they did, well, you know, what people were trying to do, lots of people were trying to like ring, um, ring their loved ones to let them know that they were okay. Uh, you know, a lot of people went into the houses in the suburbs kind of near the stadium to say, can I use your phone? Uh, can I, can I talk to them? And it was just a really agonizing time then of that point of really trying to figure out what happened. What they eventually did was they took a Polaroid picture of each of the people that had died and then put them up on a board. And so people were then able to go look up on the board to see if, if their if their loved one had been one of the one of the unfortunate victims. Um, or it would then rely on people kind of scouring the hospitals nearby to try and find the person that they were worried about. And yeah, just that whole the whole like time as after the crush just sounds awful because even if you were in the pen or in the stadium and you knew people were in the pen like it was so easy like with all the chaos just to get lost and not be able to you know you weren't you're with someone and now you're not and they're gone and don't have phones like you do now so it it just then how would you find someone and so yeah it was a very very stressful time so in the kind of hours that followed, uh, people would uh, identify the, the those that had been killed. And it was, you know, and the identification and and that whole process was just horrendous. And it was not done in a way at all to support the victims or support those that were bereaved. Uh, the police were, were quite harsh in terms of how they did it. Uh, and not only that, but then as soon as the bereaved identified the victims they then took uh, them away to to get statements from them and often in those statements uh, they would ask about like the attendance whether they thought the person had consumed alcohol what the person's reputation was you know it was all this kind of like interrogation as to what the what the victim was and and who they were because even from this like very early time the police were already spinning the story that they wanted in terms of it being the the crowd's fault as to what happened. So yeah, in total, 94 people died on the day, uh, either in the pen, on the pitch, or shortly after in hospital. Um, almost 200 people were taken to hospital for treatment. Uh, one more person died in the, the hospital weeks later. Uh, then another died from their injuries uh, and was in a coma for four years after the incident. And so this led to the number of, of 96, uh, so 96 deaths. Uh, and then if you in the UK, you'll be very familiar with the, the kind of slogan uh, of justice for the 96. Uh, and that is where that number came from. But you will might have noted from the beginning, it's now actually 97 because one final victim died in 2021 because of the injury that they had sustained at Hillsborough all those time, all those years earlier. In terms of, of the context of those people, you know, out of 97, 79 of them were under 30 years old. So it was a very, a very young crowd. And yeah, it was and the majority were were men, um, but there were also women and and children in that uh, in the pen uh, that were impacted. And yeah, like I say, the majority very young, mainly because uh, in the book I read a lot of the the kind of older fans were were heading off to the seat. So it was clear as soon as this had happened um, that the police, like I said, were, wanted to really cover their tracks, right? Because they clearly had not managed the crowd in any satisfactory way. But immediately the police basically were like, no, what we want to do is we want to blame the crowds on it and we want to show that it was these, these raging alcohol-fueled crowds uh, that, that just did whatever they wanted that led to this issue. And so, like I said, they were already really trying to control the narrative at this point, saying that it was a fault of the fans. And, and that was what had happened. So in the kind of days after uh, that happened, there were lots of condolences given. Uh, the Queen gave her condolences. Thatcher visited the following day. And what then very much happened was that the press then turned 
against the crowds and the fans and the press came out and very much supported the police and the police's narrative. And this this whole kind of argument of who was to blame to Hillsborough would now take decades to resolve. And we're going to go through through the that in mainly in the next episode. But a lot of it was then influenced by what the media was saying and doing at the time. And this is just like, I couldn't even believe it when I saw the pictures. Like Because I kind of knew that this had happened. Like I knew that like the sun wasn't very good and Liverpool and da 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 da. I like knew that. But then when I saw the pictures of the paper, I just couldn't, I literally couldn't believe it. So four days after the disaster, the sun, which is for non-UK listeners, like a, 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 a UK newspaper, um, not one that I'm I'm a fan of, uh, that they 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 ran a headline which said in big bold at the top it said the truth and then there were bullet points underneath it and the bullet points said some fans picked pockets of victims, some fans urinated on the brave cops, some fans beat up PCs giving the kiss of life. Like, can you believe that that is a headline? Oh, I just yeah, oh, it shocked me. And so clearly, you know, as we've heard, like the fans were the ones that were trying to actually help the other people there. And the police were the ones that were just not doing a very good job at all. Um, but yeah, the the police, it came out years later that the police had kind of leaked these stories and these headlines to The Sun and The Sun had, had gone ahead and, and published it. And this very much led to, to widespread hatred uh, by Liverpool fans of the Sun, and the Sun is still boycotted quite a lot in in the in the North West because of those headlines. But other other papers kind of followed a similar theme. They they claimed reports uh, from the police, uh, and what this meant was that it very much at this point became a kind of us and them scenario moving forward in order to get justice and to really find out what what happened. Uh, it led to the survivors and the families of victims really starting to bond together. Uh, to you know they they knew this tide was turning against them and the narrative that the police was spinning was turning against them uh, but they knew that they were the the ones that had had struggled and they were the ones that didn't get what they needed from the authorities so anyway I'm going to stop there uh, with at at the kind of immediate the crush itself and then the and the media immediate aftermath um, and then on the next episode I will uh, go through the the full aftermath uh, and what what happened uh, up until pretty much current day. Um, I'm going to do full references at the end of the next episode, but I wanted to shout out two key references now. Uh, like I said, the quotes that I'm talking through are from Hillsborough Voices, the real story told by the people themselves by Kevin Sampson. Uh, and the majority of my content also came from the Hillsborough Independent Panel Report. I'll talk more about that panel in the next episode. Um, but that uh, report was very much a, a key um, a key input. So yep, join us next time uh, and we'll cover the aftermath, fight for justice, uh, and then we'll dive into the other the other crushes that I mentioned uh, around Astro World and Love Parade. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, please do, uh, like I said, rate, subscribe, uh, follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod. Uh, next episode will be out next week. So not too long for you to wait. Uh, and yeah, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>